We're good to start? Okay. So we are six minutes into our panel discussion, so we have to be fast. Uh, my name is Gary Greenstein. I am a partner with the law firm of Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich, and Rosati, which is the largest law firm in Silicon Valley, and I conveniently live in Washington, D.C. Uh, to my immediate left, we have Mo Medinat, who is uh, corporate counsel at Pandora Media Inc., handling litigation and licensing issues. David Ring, former executive vice president at Universal Music Group. He is the one responsible for a lot of the, uh, let's say, facts that we deal with in the digital music space. But more importantly, David has seen the light and the wisdom, and he now works with technology companies uh, on music strategy, both with corporate boards, startups, public companies, et cetera. So uh, if you want to see someone apologize for what they did in the past, <laughs> see David. Uh, Ron Gertz, the chairman of MRI, Music Reports, Inc., one of the leading, and actually maybe I will say, anyone from HFA in the room? The leading music rights <laughs> administration company. Uh, and an independent music rights administrator, which has the interests of its customers in mind, as opposed to being a mechanical rights administrator that may be owned by an unnamed performing rights organization. Uh, and then John Rudolph at the far end, our model uh, speaker. Foil. And <laughs> our foil. John is the former CEO of, of Bug Music, one of the largest independent publishers in the United States and, or the world. And John is now uh, an investor, an advisor, and a principal at Music Analytics. So we have a mix of people and various backgrounds. I am going to assume a certain degree of knowledge because we're going to try to go quickly in here. But let me first get a show of hands. How many of you are technology company entrepreneurs? How many of you are musicians? How many of you are attorneys? And how many of you are service providers to some aspect of any of the foregoing? Okay. So I'm going to assume you're all really smart. This is a 500-level course uh, in law school. And if you're not prepared, uh, there will be an exam at the end. Uh, so basic understanding musical works and sound recordings, because that will underlie much of what we're talking about here. Lennon and McCartney are songwriters. They write musical works. They assign those rights to music publishers. There are different rights attendant to the musical work. John, Paul, George, and Ringo are recording artists. They create the sound recordings that are owned by record labels. A lot of what we are going to talk about today have to deal with the differences between musical works, sound recordings, record labels, songwriters, music publishers, and everything that flows from that. So why don't we start off with Mo, who left. Uh, she's already hiding from me. Sorry. Oh, actually, let me also say, nothing that any of us say on this panel can or will be used against us in any proceeding. Uh, people are speaking individually, uh, not on behalf of a company that may employ them or a company that may be a client. So at a full disclosure, uh, Mo's employer is a client of mine, so if I cut her off and stop her from speaking. I definitely appreciate it. <laughs> there is a reason why I do so. But please. Well, hold on, hold on, Gary. Um, I'm an investor in a company that, that you're also. That is true. John is an investor. Ron, I have spoken so. with in the past, and David is a former client of mine from when I used to represent Universal Music. Welcome to the music business. <laughs> 
There's not a conflict that you should not try to get around. It's that old uh, joke, it's, it's not a conflict if everybody pays. Yes. Okay, so performing rights organizations and consent decree modification. Many of you may know that ASCAP and BMI represent the vast majority of songwriters and music publishers for the purposes of licensing performing rights in musical works. There is now an effort to change the consent decrees that were entered into by each of ASCAP and BMI with the United States Department of Justice. And as the music publishers like to say, these are World War II era consent decrees. Very clever line, but you still have an issue where you have competitors coming together to fix pricing. And for those of you who are attorneys and understand antitrust laws, that would normally be a violation of federal law. And so there are restraints that are put on ASCAP and BMI to restrain their ability to fix prices and obtain super competitive pricing. But right now there is a desire to change that because publishers are raising a number of issues where they are unhappy with the prices that are, that are uh, being paid. So Mo, Pandora has actually been involved in some litigation actually with each of ASCAP and BMI over the last couple of years. And that came out, uh, or one of the key issues in those rate court proceedings was the fact that music publishers tried to withdraw from each of ASCAP and BMI. There were judicial determinations on whether or not those were permitted. And then there have been comments of, that the publishers have made about wanting parity with the labels, complaining about the royalty rates. Can you just give us a, a brief overview of that issue with the consent decrees and withdrawals? Sure, so um, historically, up until a few years ago, uh, music services could rely on the blanket licenses from the PROs, CSAC, ASCAP, and BMI for um, the vast majority of the licenses that they needed to perform music on their service. Um, starting a few years ago, uh, we saw publishers um, looking to withdraw their works from the PROs for a number of, a number of different reasons. Um, but this started around, I believe, 2011. Um, in those situations, um, we, at Pandora anyway, um, you know, we were faced with either taking down the music um, because we would no longer have a license uh, to that music uh, if the publisher withdrew. Um, or doing a direct deal with the publisher um, to cover the licensing fees for, for those rights. Uh, in a lot of situations, uh, in most situations, there was, we really did not have much of a uh, choice because there's a lack of transparency in the music industry as to ownership of musical compositions. And so um, in those situations, Pandora really was forced to enter into direct licenses with some publishers that had um, partially withdrawn from the PROs. Um, we did not believe that um, publishers could partially withdraw under the consent decrees, um, and so we litigated these uh, issues uh, in the ASCAP and BMI rate courts. Um, both courts found that partial withdrawals uh, were not allowed. Um, and so, um, as a result, um, we've seen publishers publicly state that they will fully withdraw from the PROs unless um, there's some change um, with the consent decrees that govern the PROs' uh, conduct. Now, Mo, what were the rate decisions that the ASCAP and BMI rate courts established for Pandora's payments? In, public performance in terms of the actual the number? percentage of revenue. So in the ASCAP rate court proceeding, um, the rate was set at 1.85% of revenue. 
um, for five years, I believe 2011 through 2015, through the, through the end of this year. Um, in the BMI rate court, the rate was set at 2.5% of revenue um, starting, I believe, 2013 through the end of 2016. So, and ASCAP's bigger than BMI. That's Two correct. different judges, BMI got a bigger rate. And what is a percentage of your revenue, what is Pandora currently paying to SoundExchange? Approximately. That's a good question. Um, I would say, I believe it's uh, upper 40 percent, 45 percent of our revenue goes to sound, sound exchange. And that's pursuant to the Webcaster Settlement Act, which is actually a discount off of the rates that were established by the Copyright Royalty Board. So if Pandora were paying the, quote, CRB rates, you would be paying a much higher percentage of your revenue. So, I mean, if we had to pay under the uh, statutory rate, I mean, we probably wouldn't be in business today. Um, so we would be paying significantly more. Um, and, and I don't believe in a sustainable, well, I, I don't believe it would allow us to invest into the company, into, um, you know, into other avenues of business um, in a way that would help the company grow. So that, that delta, if Pandora were paying at the CRB established rates, they'd probably be paying in the high 70% of revenue just for the sound recording. The musical work copyright owners, and that's for performance and a very small fee for the what's called the ephemeral phono record to reproduce sound recordings and server copies. So you're now looking at the performance royalty for musical works at roughly 4.5%, and effectively for sound recordings in the mid to high 40s, but if it were without this benefit of legislation that expires at the end of this year, uh, you'd be talking about a delta between 4.5% and maybe 75%. Uh, John, is that an appropriate delta between what songwriters and publishers are being paid versus what sound recording copyright owners are being paid? So <clears throat> for you, those of you who saw the legal panel yesterday, I apologize. It's going to be repetitive, Jeff Liebenson. Um, the look it's i don't know how you value one piece of work over the other i mean that's what you're asking me to say and and that's the way i look at it i mean what a songwriter uh does has as much value as what an artist does and it, i'm not saying it's on parity i think in the sense that you have it has to be a 50 50 split there are some business conventions in other areas of licensing that have made that split um, but i do think it's worth saying that the you know, the idea, and, and maybe I'm going to throw this back at David, um, the idea that a company can own the largest music public, you know, music publishing library and own the largest label, and I would like to know what that conversation's like internally on how that allocation occurs. David, tell us, please. <laughs> I, actually, I can. Um, so for every, this is super rough math, but for every dollar in, um, the publisher keeps 25 cents uh, on the publishing side and for every dollar in on the record side they keep about 75 cents so it's pretty easy to figure out how the major record companies view their publishing arms um, they're very profitable uh, great cash flow businesses with not a lot of uh, not not too much overhead so it's a very exciting business I happen to love the publishing business um, I started out life as a songwriter and musician and uh, I can truly uh, empathize of course with all of the various parties. So, I mean, having been a struggling artist, uh, I mean, I had to go to law school because I couldn't make it. Like, that, how sad is that? <laughs> so, uh, you know, <laughs> I went from playing gigs in every LA club to uh, 
being an associate at a law firm. Um, can't get much different. But uh, basically, you know, the, the, let me address the, the point about the works, you know, a songwriter's work is, is just as important as a recording artist's work. And I, I don't actually disagree with that. What, what, I, what I would say, though, is that's not the point. I think it's a beside the point. I mean, it's true, but also not the issue. The issue is these two businesses couldn't be more different. And uh, without opining on whether the record companies spend their money wisely or intelligently or in the way that uh, a 2015 record company ought to spend their money, uh, without getting into any of that, because I have a point of view on that, but you know, it's armchair quarterbacking, which is kind of um, not that not that exciting. And when you're sitting in the in the room and you have to make your quarterly numbers or your you know bonuses are uh, going to be uh, in jeopardy and so forth, um, you know, big companies all over the world do very similar things, which aren't necessarily in their long-term strategic interests, or in the best interests of artists, or in the best interests of artists. But I think honestly, the, the record companies, um, you know, on 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 balance, uh, respect both uh, deeply respect the artists. I mean, they're nowhere without the talented artists. I mean, I, I've been privileged to even be associated with the talented artists at UMG over um, 19 years uh, of doing business there, um, and uh, and the songwriters and publishers, same thing. I mean, it's I have the deepest respect for somebody that can sit down on a blank page and write a, and write a great song, but the businesses are different. So the amount of money invested and the amount of, the amount of risk taken uh, by music, recorded music companies, is so vastly different than music publishing. It, it doesn't matter whether the actual underlying art may be similarly valued by people like us on the stage or by other artists and so forth, uh, by songwriters who are also performers. They probably view both of their things as equally important, as to John's point. But the businesses are so different, it doesn't matter. So you can't possibly have a world in which everybody is getting paid the same, record companies and publishers. That world doesn't work. The world that we're in right now doesn't work. Um, I was very uh, pleased to, to hear about the 45 to 46% of revenue um, because that's a huge, huge improvement from where Pandora was paying a long time ago. And one thing that you know we may get into talking when it, about. When, you mean when it was over a hundred percent of revenue? Yeah, I mean you, you know. The, and by the way, it's and it's, the publishers still wanted parity. By the way, this is this is the world we're living in now, which is, um, if you want to license music, it's going to cost such an extraordinary amount of money. It's it's not going to be forty five to forty six percent. It's not going to be fifty percent. It's not going to be sixty or sixty five. You're looking at like seventy two point five percent of your total revenues out the door. So is it any wonder why startups aren't getting content licenses, they're not getting investment, because they can't get the content licenses or they can't get them quickly enough? Some brilliant entrepreneurs, I see the entrepreneurs and, and, and technology startups as artists. It's the same thing. You're, you're working your entire, you know, every day, every week, all, all day, all week, to try to build something. But the question is whether, you know, all the schemes that we have and we're talking about here really make any sense um, as a macro matter, right? So on that point, though, the, so the numbers that David is talking about, that 72.5%, the vast majority of that money is going to the sound recording copyright owners, and a much smaller percentage, maybe 10.5% for an interactive streaming service, will go for what are called the publishing rights, where it would be a combination of what's called the mechanical license and subtracted from that will be the amounts paid for performing rights. Now, one of the issues that the publishers have had is 
uh, and publishers and songwriters. They want to share more in the money that's being paid. They're claiming, in part, and I've been corrected in our, in our pre-panel discussion, that it's not all about the money. There's an issue of control and licensing authority and direct relationships. But there is a big component about this delta, the difference in the amount that is paid. So you've got a total lump sum X, and then some percentage, a very large percentage, goes to the label. Smaller percentage goes to the publishers. And the publishers, in looking to withdraw from the PROs, want to effectively change that, because the PROs are regulated by the consent decree with the Department of Justice, and then subject to oversight by the rate courts in the Southern District of New York. And they posed a number of questions, uh, this is the U.S. Department of Justice, about whether or not they should modify the consent decrees. And I think when you hear them, you'll see what they're trying to get at, because publishers want to change things. And Ron, I'm going to come to you with a question on these. Uh -oh. So the questions are, have the licenses ASCAP and BMI historically sold to users, meaning their licensees, provided the right to play all the works in each organization's respective repertory, whether wholly or partially owned? Question two, if the blanket licenses have not provided users the right to play the works in the repertories, what have the licenses provided? Three, have there been instances in which a user who entered a license with only one PRO intending to publicly perform only that PRO's works was subject to a copyright infringement action by another PRO or rights holder? Three, assuming the consent decrees currently require ASCAP and BMI to offer full work licenses, should the decrees be modified to permit or require ASCAP and BMI to offer licenses that require users to obtain licenses from all joint owners of a work? So right now, you, the, the, well, Ron, let me let you address this. Typically, <laughs> I, typically got this. I got this. I can, I can hit this one out of the park. It's, so it's, typically, when a licensee wants a right from ASCAP or BMI, what were they actually getting? Let me answer it this way. You know, and, and by the way, everybody forgets, when the government decided for its reasons to create these consent decrees, it wasn't, so as, it wasn't solely about the way the licensing of works happens. It was also to control the activities of the collecting societies vis-a-vis -vis their own members. Because their own members were concerned about the, the lack of transparency over how the royalties once collected were distributed. Uh, so when we look at consent decree modifications or changes, we have to look at it from the, from the copyright owner perspective and from the licensee perspective. Uh, with regard to what the, the blanket, typical blanket license offered, was it offered a user a license to everything in the ASCAP repertoire, whether ASCAP owned 100% or whether ASCAP owned 3%. And the reason of that was for that was pretty clear because the blanket license was essentially an insurance policy. And the way it developed, you had mass uses of music on television, on radio, and one of the components of the blanket license was the ability for any user who was using music quickly to be able to say, yes, I can use this music without being sued, okay? So that's a component of the blanket license, and when the courts or the parties negotiate what that blanket license fee will be for each of the societies, it includes not just the performing rights to the songs, but includes the fact that the value of that insurance policy. So once you start going 
two, and by the way, this just shows you that the issues are much deeper and broader than the issue of just being able to withdraw a share. When the, par when the parties end up in a recourt negotiation, one of the things they have to think about, or in any negotiation is, if this insurance policy is no longer available, what does that do to the value of the blanket license? It generally means for the collecting society that the value of the blanket license goes down, okay? So in the future, if publishers are going to be allowed to withdraw certain rights such that they then have a blocking right over the use, then the licenses from the collecting societies can't be simply the typical blanket license. They have to be blanket licenses that are fractionally paid out, fractionally allocated. So if during the term of a license, a publisher withdraws, the blanket license fee has to adjust dynamically. Now, everyone is thinking, oh my God, this is terrible, this is a horrible thing, how would you ever do this? Well, what most people don't realize is that over a number of years, there have been a series of litigations to create these kinds of licenses within the structure of the ASCAP and BMI blanket license. Fortunately, and or unfortunately, depending on the, you know, if you look at my scars, I've been involved in the big ones, in the big litigations. The first one was the television per program license in which broadcasters now can pay ASCAP and BMI only for the music that they use. In other words, they can reduce that blanket license fee when they pay a copyright owner directly. In the background music industry, uh, a few years ago, the, both consent decrees were, uh, uh, were interpreted to allow every blanket license, for, you know, regardless whether it's a bar, a restaurant, or whatever, every blanket license is adjustable so that if a copyright owner, a music publisher, and a music user want to do a direct deal and the copyright owner wants to get its money directly, the ASCAP BMI blanket license fee goes down to avoid the, any possibility of double payment. Okay, so many, so all of this we talk about withdrawal, we're talking about blocking rights, and ultimately the allocation of monies among the various parties with their hands out. I would tell you, if you're a copyright owner, this is not a bad thing. This allows you to get paid directly, gross dollars, without society deductions, and without the vagaries of the distribution uh, systems. Ron, so, Ron, let me just, you talk about a blocking right. And so typically under common law, if you are tenants in common, meaning two people create a work together, they each have an indivisible portion of that work, they can grant a non-exclusive license without the consent of their co-author or co-tenant in common, subject to a duty to account. Now, Ron, when you talk about a blocking right, you're talking about a change to the common law, correct? Yeah. Answer is it, it, yes. It, yes. <laughs> yes. It, but see, ASCAP ASC, well, no, ASC and BMI have always accepted that rule. Okay, that's the basis of how ASCAP and BMI operate. That's how they can offer the, uh, uh, that insurance policy. But the, the songwriters and publishers now, by partially withdrawing, they want to say, notwithstanding the fact that a portion of my work may still be in the collecting society, if I withdraw, 
let's say I'm Sony ATV, mm -hmm. you have to come to me and license my interest that has been withdrawn. Isn't that what they're the, seeking to do? That is what they're seeking to do because they want to set, now, and why do they want to do that? Well, and, I want John to answer that. Okay. I'll let Ron answer that. Okay. Well, because John and I agree completely on this. Uh, and it's, <laughs> it, we John, do. be it, careful. <laughs> well, it, you know, everyone thinks it's because of, of the rate disparities, and that certainly had something to do with this. But this all started years ago in Europe, where the major publishers are trying to get out from underneath the distribution systems and the deductions that were being taken by the foreign collecting societies from their royalties. And it was, it was significantly from royalties for the Anglo-American catalog. So that's what started this, and it was very, very successful and it has caused even more fragmentation, but ultimately successful for the major publishers. And they looked at the United States at a, um, uh, a territory where the royalties had traditionally been lower uh, than they were in Europe, and they wanted to do the same thing in the US. Get those rights back, have a seat at the negotiating table, and eliminate those society deductions and um, undisclosed distribution fees. Well, but, but right now, I think there's no doubt that the publishers are trying to raise prices. Yes. These partial withdrawals are directly related to trying to raise prices here in the United States for the public performance right to a level that brings, that reduces that delta, obviously, with the sound recording copyright owner. Um, yes. Who believes that the Department of Justice is going to rule to permit partial withdrawals? Anyone want to prognosticate here? I think the Department of Justice stepped in it, and I think they know it. And I think they would like to get out of it if they could. John, any? I would, I would agree with that. Um, the, I think the, the conversation that was started by the Copyright Office um, is, was a, and then the, the, for lack of better words, the paper that they released and the ideas, um, you know, I'm gonna get in my soapbox a little bit here, but I, you know, Ron's business was, is, has a component to it, I'm not gonna say it was built on it, but it has a component to it where there was a free market element that happened as a result of creating the per program license. Right? So, and the market figured out what that pricing was. Um, it's changed a little bit now, uh, but still at the same time, there's multiple uh, examples of it. And I'm optimistic that even though you may have an overall pricing change. I think that's one of the things everybody has to be aware of, what the negative downside could possibly be on the overall, that there will be a, a market solution that kind of supersedes it. We saw it in the YouTube uh, deal that was cut with the publishers. Um, that really doesn't have any statutory component to it other, other than maybe you could argue that what has to be paid to the performance societies is a piece of that in the carve out. But um, I think that you're going to, my opinion is we're going to see a move towards that and, and whether that's supported DOJ through the consent decrees, whether that's coming from the copyright office or better, better than anything is the companies who want to use the product and the companies who want to license the music actually find ways to do that together. And I just feel like there's a lot of momentum. There's a, there is money being invested in the technology community, and that's where it's going. It's going into the infrastructure, into the pipes, not into retail. And one other thing, I don't know if anybody is aware of this, but uh, ASCAP announced today that they're that they're going that they're going to open their entire catalogs 
or their entire 10 million plus catalog to what the um, licensable splits are on all, on all their repertoire. Yeah, and in terms of marketplace solutions, I will ask a question and then I will answer the question even though it's directed <laughs> at panelists. Pandora just did a deal with Sony ATV, and that is a marketplace deal between two parties, and Mo can't comment on it. Sorry. So uh, <laughs> I don't want anyone to accuse me of not asking the question, but on the advice of counsel, she will not answer any questions. What about counsel? Gary, can counsel answer a question? Uh, no, <laughs> I will not comment. Uh, let's move to pre-72 sound Gary, recordings. No. Is it, What's it about? The, the topic that we were just Yeah, on. we're moving on. Okay. Pre-72 recordings. Another hot issue. So pre-72 sound recordings. Sound recordings fixed before February 15th, 1972 are not subject to federal copyright protection, which means that they are subject to a patchwork of different state law protections. Uh, there has been a number, there have been a number of lawsuits that have been filed against services, uh, Sirius and Pandora in particular. There have been victories for the copyright owners of those pre-72 recordings in New York and California. Uh, there have been losses in Florida and then there are a flurry of more lawsuits. If they're not subject to federal copyright protection, they're not eligible for statutory licensing, which means that non-interactive, and this is really a non-interactive services issue, they do not have a mechanism to use those recordings under a blanket regime created by Congress. Interactive services are already going out and doing direct deals with the labels, so they do not need to worry about pre-72, they just license the entire catalog from Universal. But Mo, can you give us an update on where those litigations are and the fact that Pandora recently entered into a settlement. Sure. Um, there are a number of litigation going on right now um, surrounding this issue. So it started with Sirius in California and New York. There were two lawsuits filed against Sirius, um, one um, in the New uh, California state court, one in the federal court. Um, both of In both of those cases, um, the judges found that there was a performance right um, under a California state statute for pre-1972 sound recordings. Um, then Sirius was also sued in New York. Um, in that case, the judge also um, found that there was a performance right under New York common law, um, but certified the question for a automatic appeal given that it, she believed it was a close issue. And so that case um, is on appeal right now. Um, Sirius was also sued in Florida, um, which Gary mentioned. Um, on summary judgment, the Florida uh, court found that there was no performance right in pre-1972 sound recordings under Florida common law. Um, Pandora was sued in California by Flo and Eddie, um, I believe, last year. Um, we had the same judge as a serious judge. Um, found, uh, we filed a early on in the case, we filed an anti-slap motion to strike the, um, the claims against us um, for um, first, amended, first Amendment violations. Um, the judge uh, denied our motion, um, but that allowed us to um, automatically appeal um, the decision. And so that case um, is currently pending before the Ninth Circuit. Um, then in New York, we were, Pandora was sued in New York State Court um, by the labels, um, so Capitol Records, Abco, Warner, Sony, and Universal Music, um, and that is the case that was recently settled, um, and really in an effort on Pandora's part um, to 
uh, you know, continue discussions with the music industry that that probably wouldn't happen um, otherwise. And so it's an effort to kind of get the ball moving with um, working more closely with the with the labels in future dis, uh, discussions and. So set, are settlements of litigation are they subject to the statutory split of 50, 45, two and a half, two and a half, which is sound recording copyright owner, featured artist, non-featured musicians, and non-featured uh, vocalists? Um, there, uh, no. Um, so they're subject to whatever agreements the labels have with those correct. artists. Correct. Um, David, money going into the record labels. You're not there anymore, so you're not speaking for Universal. Um, when money goes in from the settlement of litigation, how is that money typically typically accounted for to the extent you know in a non-privileged manner? Yeah, I can't I can't actually comment on that because I the information I do know is as part of, you know, one of the hats I wore for many years which was uh, a lawyer for the company, but um, you're not wrong in how you phrased it, which is it depends on the relationship between the record company and the artist. So it's it's you know, that's not the exclusive way that record companies pay artists. There's lots of times when the contracts won't say uh, what to do with a particular pot of money or where it's, you know, not clear. And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, I can say that, you know, in my experience, um, it may take time, but those issues tend to be worked out um, in a way that, you know, artists should be, um, reasonably happy with, but I can't so say why don't, more. So why don't we fully federalize pre-72 recordings to make them subject to all of the rights and obligations under the Copyright Act? Well, it's, it's an interesting topic and, you know, one that um, whether you partially or, or, or fully federalize, I, I don't feel particularly strongly one way or the other. I can see how and why, you know, record companies want uh, to limit it and, and limit the reversions and things that, that you, you know, some of the downside for the, the at least perceived downside for a copyright owner. But actually, um, I worry a lot more about the artists and the songwriters. And, you know, I, all the discussion we were having before, it's a little bit like a Republican or Democratic debate where you get to go back to the prior questions since the moderator you don't get doesn't to do that. let me do that. Well, I, unless you're going to shout over me, I guess I can. I can ask them to turn <laughs> off their mic. But we, we do but need to speak up. And, artists and songwriters, I, I worry more about artists and songwriters and entrepreneurs. And why do I do that? Because I spent my entire life in music. So if you, if you don't have full federalization, you're going to have, you know, a, another, just yet one more thing for services to worry about. They have so many risks, these companies that take their chances. Mm -hmm and investors that take their money and actually invest it in somebody's belief that they can make a difference in this world. And all of these topics, it just strikes me as so, it's disheartening in some respects. I love the fact that John and Ron are, are, are in that mode of, we, we, we can approach a solution here. We can get not only a market solution, but one that actually is blanket and works for both artists, writers, and entrepreneurs. But we don't have that yet, and it's many, many, many years away. And so I worry about all these withdrawals. I worry about the artists. Which songwriters benefit from withdrawals? Which songwriters? So let, let's, let's only, pick that only, up. Only the ones that aren't making enough money right now. No, Taylor Swift is not going to, you know, all of a sudden become richer because they withdraw. I mean, it, sure, she'll become richer, but how much richer do you need to be? It's the it's the day it's the day in day out songwriters who are eking out a living, barely. 
So let, let's talk about that. Ron, one of the issues, anyone here, is Jeff Price in the room? Okay. Uh, one of the issues that is going on these days that for those on the fall list, how many of you are actually on the fall list, the Jim Griffin list? Wow. More of you need to sign up. Uh, it's drinking from a fire hose. So one of the issues right now is an allegation that Spotify did not properly pay mechanical royalties to a music publisher, and it was discovered by a company called Audium. Uh, and then there was a response between Spotify and Audium where the works of the record label affiliated with the publisher were removed from the service, claims that 55 million song plays occurred without royalties uh, being paid. Ron, you are in the heart of this as a mechanical rights administrator. Can you just enlighten people on what is the obligation of a digital service right now? And we've got to be quick um, here. Uh, but what, what is happening in the space with an interactive service and having to pay royalties, self-reporting, invoiced by a copyright owner, just so people have a flavor of what's going on here? Well, I have to go back to the pre-72 issue real quick because I had, I, I had the solution to it. You know, and but nobody asked me. You know, I am Ron. The, what's the solution? I am the only IP lawyer in the industry who went to high school with Howard and Mark Flo and Eddie. Okay, and I was with them on grad night when when Howard was with Darlene Dickey, and I know what happened. And and if you want, I could settle this case really quick. Okay. <laughs> we should talk after the panel. That's so true. Uh, it, they, they weren't, no, no, no. So mechanical um, rights administration. Yes. Uh, look, we, we talked about the statutory license before. I will tell you, the 115 statutory license is the only reason why the on-demand music services in the U.S. can function, okay? And uh, we, at our company, we've automated that entire process uh, of invoking the statutory license and paying royalties. We did it on behalf of Medianet uh, 12 or 15 years ago. And uh, for those of you who understand it, even those of you who don't, the statutory license is the fees are set by the rate court, by the, by the CRB. They are incredibly complicated. But the good thing about them is they are all reducible to a formula that allows computers and computer systems to spit out the royalties. It took a number of years after those cases, but the Copyright Office a few years ago, or maybe it was about a year ago, finally took our suggestions on how the accounting regulations should be changed. So now, uh, anybody who's involved in the royalty processing has to be audited, has to have all their internal systems audited by an independent auditor that can state that the internal controls for creating royalty statements were functioning properly and properly designed, okay? It's the closest thing to an audit anybody would want. And frankly, when you're dealing with music in that kind of volume, you don't want to audit. It's too expensive. There is a lot of angst about Audion, uh, but there are two issues people should be, should be thinking about. One is the fact that there are a lot of wild um, uh, statements about how much music is not being paid for. I don't know about clients that we don't represent, but we represent a lot of the big ones. And I can tell you that at the end of two years, the amount of music that is unidentified is under 5%, okay? Uh, 
It, there's a little latency in, in identification simply because publishers and songwriters are late in, in representing their works, uh, or, or registering their works. But the systems work pretty darn well uh, as long as the party doing the royalty accounting has good systems for identifying, you know. Um, but, but the key, you mentioned the word audion. The, the lesson of Audium is relates directly to what you said, John, about the fact that ASCAP is now putting, in the, in the efforts of transparency, putting the shares that, of songs that they control online. This is way, way too little, way too late. Because what's already happened is companies like Audium are slicing and dicing the performing right. You're having more and more administrators who say, I'm not going to do, administer all the performing rights. I'm going to administer the YouTube performing rights. I'm going to administer the digital performing rights. I'm going to administer the karaoke performing rights. So the rights controlled by the collecting societies are being sliced and diced and fragmented. So any registry, any uh, uh, database of information has, in the last few years, simply become much, much more complicated than I ASCAP control 3% of this work. Ron, the 115, so 115 is the statutory provision that governs the, it's called the mechanical right, the reproduction distribution of a musical work. The CRB is starting a proceeding to readjust the 115 royalties beginning January 1 of next year, correct? Correct. And as opposed to the rate, the rate setting for webcasting, they don't have to finish by a specific date. It's not that they have that two-year window in which to conduct a proceeding. So we don't know when the next 115 rate will come into effect. But do you believe that there will be a negotiated settlement or a litigation over where this will go? Because the mechanical royalty income continues to decrease from physical product sales, and publishers may seek to increase that rate to make up for, quote, lost income, no? Well, there, there's more involved to that proceeding than the rate. Um, the rate is important, and the rates are important. But what's also important is how the licenses are administered and royalties are paid out after the rate is determined. There are a number of issues that the publishing community and the Copyright Office would like to change about how Section 115 works. I will tell you, simply as a lawyer who was also like David, a, a songwriter at one point, that the Section 115 statutory license is really, really, really good for independent music publishers because it makes everything normal, it makes everything transparent, and it requires a notice from the user to the individual owner of the song. So the individual owner has what we call, in legal speak, privity of contract with each user. There are uh, suggestions that that system be upended. I don't think it could be done in, the, in a CRB proceeding, but you never know, never can tell what people will argue. So um, there's more at stake than the rates, but for any, all the independent publishers who want to make sure that they get paid the same as the major publishers uh, on a on a download by download or stream by stream basis, you have a real, real, real important interest in making sure the rules stay pretty much the way they are. Well, well let's talk about people wanting to ensure that they get paid the same. So there have been two pieces written recently. Matt Pincus wrote something that I think was in Billboard. I certainly saw it on the fall list. And then you've got um, Charles Caldas, who's the CEO of Merlin, 
and two distinct issues. One is Matt Pincus complaining about two tiers becoming the norm for the fees paid to music publishers, with large publishers getting a certain fee and smaller publishers getting a lower fee. And Matt Pincus was complaining about the fact that the lower rates being paid for independent uh, musical works would cause the indies to lose songwriters to the majors because the indies would be collecting less and therefore paying out less. And then in the webcaster proceeding, there was a certified question, what's called a novel question of law, by the copyright royalty judges to the Register of Copyrights that asked whether or not the CRB, the Copyright Royalty Board, could establish different rates in the current webcaster proceeding where Pandora is a participant that would have one rate being paid to the major labels, presumably. The, the question is, can there be different rates depending upon who the licensor is? And I think the fair way to interpret that is, can the majors get paid one rate, a higher rate, and can independent labels get paid a lower rate? Does anyone have a position or a concern about differential pricing between major labels or publishers and indies? Or do they think that price competition between indies and majors is a good thing? Presumably, if you want to sell more quantity of your goods, you drop your price, make it more attractive, and people play it more. Uh, versus if you keep your prices high and it restricts consumption. But song, you know, John, you represented an independent publisher. Do you have a position on whether or not this split between the major publishers getting a higher rate, possibly, and the independents getting a lower rate is good for the marketplace, bad, pro-competitive? First thing is, um, Gary, can, can you please come to my next dinner party? Because this is <laughs> compelling, compelling stuff. Um, the, uh, um, which is on one level serious because it's like we argue about these things, you know, and this is like we're spending a ton of money debating all this and we have government involved and you're like, really, is this the best use of everybody's money and time when it comes to way other ways? The question at hand is a it's interesting that it's just come up now. I'm glad that Matt brought that up. Matt's the CEO of a song, uh, Songs Music Publishing. We were both on the NMPA board together. Uh, and the answer is, I don't think we know. I mean, one of the things that always gets, you know, now we're talking about a, a, a market. It's one of the hardest parts about this is having part of it being free market and part of it not being free market. And how does part of that affect one group but not the other group when you're not in that, from a pure economic standpoint, you're not looking at the whole picture in one environment or the other. It's very difficult to know what would happen. And if you put on top of that the context then of this whole conversation that's happening um, on 100% licensing, um, and so, if you did have those scenarios, you know, you get into, if you had to break up in the idea, there's a lot of ideas that that pricing pressure is going to come from two places, the managed service idea of the PROs becoming managed service entities instead, and then they're having to negotiate with the major right holders as far as what the percentage is going to be that they're going to do that. That's kind of what's happened in Europe in certain cases. And then the independents, obviously, are going to have smaller catalogs, just like, you know, if I could try to go buy grain to feed my cows, if I got one cow, I'm going to pay a higher price than if I have a thousand cows. It's just the law of economics, right? So you've got those challenges. 
you get into it's always been a concern and it's not just been a concern because it's a a theoretical idea it has actually been used in conversations when you've been when independents have been trying to recruit or or uh, sign up uh, songwriters like they will actually say in those meetings well we're going to get you more because we do this it started with directly licensing um, instead of going through harry fox it started there and it's going to continue and it is a challenge for independents I'm not necessarily saying that's not the world we live in, but if you just have part of it that works that way and not the whole part, that allows there to be another piece that puts, if you would, creates that balance backwards, then you are going to get into this disparity. David, does, yeah. should a major label get paid more under the statutory license than an independent label for performance on a service like Pandora? Yes it's or no? A, we got to hurry up. Yeah. Um, I, I just think it misses the point. The question misses the point, right? The, it, it, I agree with John. Um, if you if you just focus on the entrepreneur for a second, because where are the innovations coming from? Wh who's going to innovate in this space? Who's going to invest in innovation? And the question is, well, what what good is it, right, to be to be unable, even if you know we have the ability, if you're an independent publisher or you're a major publisher, you have the ability to squeeze more money out of an entrepreneur because you're a major publisher or a major record company. And the indies maybe don't have the same leverage, so therefore they weren't able to cut the same kind of deal. So that's just the way the market works. But this market is so unbelievably challenged because it's not really a market at all. Everybody is a copyright monopoly. And the copyright monopolies mask massive uh, fissures and major problems for both publishers and record companies and entrepreneurs and therefore artists and writers as well. So it's, it's, it's not as simple as, well, we need a market economy, we need a statutory economy. We have this incredible mishmash. And what you really need is a strategy for how to navigate that mess. Because it doesn't do anybody any good to say yes or no to a question that in the end, to an entrepreneur, or an artist, or a writer, it's irrelevant. So Mo, what Pandora's position on whether or not, and then this will be, got one more question after this and then questions from the audience. Should there be a rate differential and, and is that manageable under the statutory regime? I, there, I, I don't believe there should be. I, I, it's an administrative nightmare to try to figure out who owns what. And you have um, you know, tracks moving from indies to you know, major labels all the time and having to keep track of that just seems completely impossible. Um, you know, there was, an, there was also there was an article that came out a while ago um, and it, the header was something like, now Paris Hilton's music is worth more than Taylor Swift's. And really like, I mean, Paris Hilton is signed with a major label and Taylor Swift isn't. So that's hysterical to think oh, that- Oh, the you, justice of that. Well, I mean, it, I mean, it really comes down to, are we gonna see a huge move, a huge shift from artists just running to join major labels because of the fact that they can make more money that way? Okay, now everyone has to answer this question because it can only be yes or no. Statutory rates adopted by the CRB, will they go down from the current CRB rate of 0.23 cents per performance, enabling the webcasting industry to survive? Or will the rates go up, killing the webcasting industry and requiring only the largest interactive services subsidized by companies that can make money elsewhere? Um, not a loaded question. Uh, will the CRB rates be decreased for the first time in history? I honestly don't even want to touch that question okay. and the impact it would have on like stock. I, okay. We're just gonna. Yeah. David, uh, I think the rates are going down. 
Ron? I think it'll be the same. I think it doesn't matter. People consume music wherever they consume it. I okay. think other Question. services will create it. Questions from the audience? Yes, please. Do we have a microphone? Right over here, up front. It's Robert. Yeah, he always does this. <laughs> the, the questions, they have to be questions, not statements. No, I, <clears throat> I'm a music publisher. I've been in business 28 years. And what I'm concerned about the whole music industry, we're not selling to the public anymore. We're, we're spending, like uh, John saying, all this litigation, all these royalty rates, but I don't see where we're selling to the consumer. I know you're a streaming company, but we're not, there's 15 streaming companies out there. So I own masters and I own songs. So where's the revenue streams and the payouts? Yes. So um, that's a good question. I think um, as a non-interactive uh, service, we pride ourselves in being a promotional platform, and we've done studies that show that we actually push people to buy music. Well, also, um, how, how much money did Pandora pay in royalties, cost, cost of content acquisition last year? Ooh, last year, 45... 400, oh, 400 million. 400 million. I know we've paid about, uh, over 1.5 billion um, in the last few years. In so, 10 years. In 10 that's years. Your total. So, um, so that, that's real money. In addition, we are constantly looking for ways to provide artists with other sources of revenue. Um, our latest purchase of Ticketfly is one of those ways that we hope to use leverage the data that we have um, to help artists uh, sell out concerts or find their fan base in a way that will allow them to make more money. Ron, over the last five years, what is the amount of money that your customers, your DSPs that use the Mechanical Rights Administration of MRI have paid out two music publishers, ballpark? Well, I can tell, tell you generally over the last five years, we've allocated about $5 billion in royalties. And allocated and then paid out Between less. songs and, and masters. But you know, to be more specific about your, your, your question, Robert, you know, it, it, there are statutory rates. There are what are like statutory rates with the ASCAP and BMI you know, blanket licenses. Ron, you gotta be quick. Okay. We gotta I will to tell you that, that you're selling to Pandora, you're selling to our other clients, SiriusXM, Amazon, whoever, okay? I will tell you, because I, I know the numbers. If you were to negotiate and sell to them your music at a rate that was less than the prevailing rate, but you got paid from them, you would eliminate the admin fees, you would eliminate the distribution system, you would make more money gross. Okay, next okay. question. Debbie, you always ask. Let's see if there's someone else. Wait, you always <laughs> ask questions. Anyone else? Back here. I, I wanna thank everybody for, for being up there. Um, but the one piece I think that's missing is, is what about the artist himself? David, you mentioned it somewhat. I mean, how is this all sustainable for the artist? Mo, you talked about how much money Pandora has paid out, but you talk about the percentage, um, it, it's very, very low. I mean, I would love to have David Lowry on this panel as well. It, it's I'm actually sure. not, it, in terms of the percentage of what Pandora has paid out, it's a very significant percentage. And it would no, be even if, higher. But if you look at a per spin basis, it's very, But that's very different, you, you use the term percentage. So on a per spin basis, and if you look at the amount of money that's being paid by these services, another way to look at it is, and David was the person who said this to me years ago, the record industry at $15 billion, 
thought they, they were wearing a $15 billion suit because they were inflated by people being forced to buy a packaged good when they wanted one or two songs. The freedom to the consumer to buy that music that they want has been very liberating to the consumer, and it was imposed upon them a regime in which the revenues of the companies were inflated. So I'm not sure that David Lowry's analysis of the per spin rate is appropriate. There are hundreds of millions of dollars in royalties being paid. Pandora's payments are allocated fi roughly 52.5% to the labels and 47.5% to the artists when you account for the ephemeral fees. And then you've got the interactive services that are paying lots of money to the record labels. Whether or not that money makes it to the artists, that's not a services issue. That's an issue between artists and the labels that they negotiate contracts with. And I, th I also think it's important to remember that um, streaming services have a one-to-one. -one that So every time we spin a song, it's to one person. Whereas traditionally, when we look at radio, every time a song is you know, played on the radio, it's being distributed amongst hundreds of thousands of people. So I think there's a big difference that people forget about. Got to be quick. I'd just like to suggest, I, I think the question that you've raised, is, I'm super sorry we didn't get a chance to address it, because it's hypercritical. And the question really is, what do artists do today, right? And I'm not talking about the Taylor Swifts, the, you know, massively talented and successful artists out there who aren't Taylor Swift, and they are going to be suffering from the idea that they're not selling $10 unit CDs anymore. But that's the world we're living in. So I actually have some ideas, uh, which we don't have time for, obviously, but I think we should have spent more time. Unfortunately, maybe we'll do another panel next year, but this is actually a fantastic question, and I think if we focus on fans and artists as an industry, laser focus on fans and artists, and then add entrepreneurs and their investors, if we do that, we can solve some of these problems. But if we keep you know, just wishing the world weren't so, I mean, I spent a lot of years in the record company where record companies, some folks there, wished the world weren't the way it was. And I learned a very important lesson. Look at the world the way it is, not the way you wish it were. And these artists that are suffering, I feel for them because it's just not the same anymore. But guess what, you know, look at PewDiePie. There are lots and lots of ways. Look at Kylie Jenner's app or Kim Kardashian. It, I'm not ad advocating that's the way artists should go, trust me. That's, but what I'm saying is there are other ways to authentically engage with your audience and earn a living. It's just not gonna come from a, a fractional stream rate. That doesn't mean that the services aren't paying 72 and a half cents of every dollar out. That's insane. I mean, you can't, how, do you, how, do, how does an investor even invest in a company like that? So we've got a lot of challenges, but my advice, and, and the last thing I'll say is, as an industry, everybody in this room and everybody that cares about music, art, and you know, common sense should be thinking about fans, artists, songwriters, entrepreneurs and their investors, and that's what we should be focused on. And not record labels. We're losing, you have it from the former EVP of Universal Music Group. Um, John, let's give out uh, email addresses for people who may want to contact you. And I'm sorry we didn't get through the 23-page outline that I prepared for my speakers yeah. who were forced to read it last night. But John, uh, you J-O-H-N at musicanalytics.com. Ron? R. Gertz. Actually, give, give out Bill Coulter's <laughs> email so that you don't have to give it. Seriously, you can no, give out Bill's. No, see, I'll, I'll do it. I'll be the filter because Bill's too busy as it is. Uh, R. Gertz at musicreports.com. David Ring Media at gmail.com. Please put SF Music Tech in the subject. Uh, first initial, last name at pandora.com. 
and G. Greenstein at WSGR.com. Thank you all for coming. There's a lot more to discuss here, and hopefully the panelists can stick around and meet some of the people in the audience. Thank you. <laughs>